and uh, um, so uh, I bring welcomes and greetings from Hong Kong. Anybody been to Hong Kong before? Wow, that's way more than I thought. That's awesome. You guys are the shiny, amazing, anointed people. Um, uh, I'm a little bit biased. Uh, I, so let me tell you a little bit about who I am before I start, uh, because uh, often when I go speaking around different places, um, I have a bit of a weird accent, and people wonder, like, where is this guy from? And they don't listen to a word of what I say for 20 minutes, and they just try to work out where I was born. Um, so let me give you a little background. Uh, I'm English. I was born in England. Anybody from England here? Great, I knew. I just knew. I just knew it. You, you sit at the back too. Awesome, great. So I was born in the UK, uh, but I left when I was seven years old, uh, and I moved to the US. Any Americans here? Yes. Welcome. I was in uh, North Carolina for a year, and then three years in a place called Connecticut, which I'm sure we know about, uh, just outside of New York. Uh, and then at the age of 11, my dad got moved to Hong Kong. And so we as a family all moved to Hong Kong, and uh, I pretty much lived in Hong Kong uh, since I was 11. I'm now a little bit older than 11. Um, I've been in the city for over 30 years. Um, and uh, I went back to the UK to study for university, and then as soon as I graduated from university, I came to back up in Hong Kong, and pretty much uh, been working in Hong Kong. I was a banker for many years, I apologize, but I was a banker for many years, um, and uh, then I decided to move over into, into being a pastor, and that's a whole story that I'm not going to share uh, with you this morning, um, but it's a really a great privilege uh, to be here. So my accent is a what I call a Hong Kong international accent. It's a mountain part of England, America. Oh, by the way, my wife is from New Zealand. So, the great state down north. Uh, she's, uh, she's from there south, actually, down south. Uh, <laughs> it's upside down for me. Um, but, uh, but that's why I have a little bit of a kind of weird accent as well, like a little tweak on the end of my sentences and stuff. So, hey, I, I want to get into this uh, this morning, and um, I want to pick up on something Jeff said a couple of weeks ago. Um, Jeff preached an amazing message two weeks ago, and he said, uh, that we get this great invitation by God to be a part of His great masterpiece. That we get to dip our paintbrushes in the paint, the colored paint that God has provided for us, and we get to partner with Him in painting the masterpiece that He's creating in the world. I love that concept, and I love the framing of that as we think about what missions is. And then Steve last week brought an incredible word around the idea of faith. He talked about a, a can-do attitude. We're, we're looking at that passage where we're created anew so that we can do, and this idea of a can-do attitude of faith, creating in us a culture of faith so we realize that we're not just saved by Jesus so that we can, you know, just have a nice life for ourselves, but we're saved by Jesus so that in faith and through faith we can begin to partner with Him in the things that He has going on, the masterpiece that He's creating in the people and in society around us. And I know so often when we look at people and we look at society around us, we think that's not much of a masterpiece. But God's work of transformation is happening around the world. It's even happening right here in Kalamunda. Can I have an amen? Amen. Yes. And you get to be a part of it. You are created new in Christ Jesus so that you can not just get to heaven, but so that you can actually begin to be His hands and feet right here in the transformation that He desires in culture and society and people today. And so last week, Steve was saying, let's get the faith that we need, the culture of faith, to walk out the mission that God's put before us. Here's what I want to say as we start this morning. That there is a relationship between our identity in Christ Jesus and our ability to move in faith. You cannot 
disassociate your understanding of who you are in Christ, your identity in Jesus, from your ability to move in faith. And when I drive around and I see churches and I see pastors and they say, oh man, our pastors, uh, our church is in a bit of a faith crisis right now. I can guarantee that actually the link to that faith crisis is actually a crisis of identity. That, that the people of that church have lost an understanding of what it actually means to be made alive and new in Christ Jesus. And as we come to fully understand our identity, we then begin to find ourselves able to move in faith to do the things that God wants us to do. Let me tell you a little story about that lesson in my life. A couple of years ago, um, back in 2011 actually, a few years ago now, I was at the Hillsong Conference. Anyone know at the Hillsong Conference? Yep. Yeah. So I was at the Hillsong Conference, and that year, listen to this, that year, 60,000 people were registered for the conference. 60,000 people. And they were meeting in a stadium that only hosts 30,000 people. So they have a big problem. 60,000 people want to come to the conference, they get only 30,000 people in the stadium. So what they decided to do was to run every session twice, back to back. And they would set up a session, run it at 9 in the morning, run it for an hour and a half to 10.30, then they would get 30,000 people in that session. Then they would get 30,000 people out of the building in a half an hour turnaround, get another 30,000 people back in, and they would run the same session again. Can you imagine doing that? And they did that four times a day. So two sessions in the morning, two sessions in the afternoon and evening. And so when you registered, you were given a specific session that you had to go to, that you had to be connected to. And you were only allowed to go to that specific session. Now we took a team of about 100 people from our church to the conference that year, and we were assigned all these different sessions that we had to go to. I had a problem on the Thursday. I was supposed to be assigned to the afternoon session, but I had to do some emergency work. So I, I couldn't go to that session. So I went to the, the desk and I said, look, can I get a ticket for the evening session? I know I'm not signed up for it, I'm not registered for it, but if it's okay, if I can slip in, and thankfully they let me get in. And I was so excited about this. Here's why. When you're leading a team of 100 people into a conference of 60,000 people, you're on all the time with the team. I, I love it, I love being the team, I love being in class, it's great. But I was like, I finally get one session for myself. Like, I've got no one around me, no one knows me, I'm completely anonymous, I don't have to look after the hundred people that we're traveling with, I can just be me, and I can receive from Jesus, this is going to be awesome. So I show up, I get there to the session, I've got 30,000 people in this room that I do not know, that I've never seen before, even in the rest of the conference, because they're in a different loop cycle to us. I'm there, I'm in a room, and leading them with the guest worship band that, that day, and they start worshiping. And I don't know if you've ever been in a room or if you've ever had the experience of worshiping with, with that many Christians. It is, I, I encourage you at some point in your life to experience it. It's phenomenal. And as we begin to worship, we've all got our arms up and we're worshiping. About 30 seconds into worship, something happens. I immediately get a word for the young lady that's standing in front of me. Now, she's probably about 25 or so. And I'm worshiping 30 seconds in. Here's what God says. Andrew. You need to tell that young lady in front of you that her husband really does love her. And I'm thinking to myself, that's a really intimate word bringing someone that I do not know. That's a really awkward moment. If I was here with my wife, I would have turned to my wife, Christine, and I would say, hey, Chris, I just got this sense of this lady in front of me. Could, could you tell her, you know, Chris would, but no, God would say, Andrew, you need to tell her that actually her husband does really love her. 
And so I, I'm, I'm looking at this girl, I'm thinking, this would be the worst thing. Imagine, if I lean forward, tap her on the shoulder, and say, hi, uh, uh, you don't know me, I'm from Hong Kong, nice to meet you. Um, by the way, uh, your husband, he really does love you, and I'm not married. Uh, um, have a great conference. Yeah. Like, so, so that's kind of what's going through my mind right now. Here's the other thing that's going through my mind. God, I'm not a prophet. I, I don't have the gift of prophecy or words of knowledge. Like, that's not who I am. God, why, why would you say this? This is probably not you. This is probably just I had some weird thing for lunch or something. Like, this, this is probably not you. I'm not getting this. God, raise, raise up somebody else for this. And he keeps on saying, you need to tell him, you need to tell him, you need to tell him. So now, I'm looking to see if she's wearing a wedding ring, which raises her hands in there. She's not wearing a wedding ring. So I say to God, I'm not a prophet, I'm not interested, raise up someone. I carry on worshipping, somewhat guilty, but carry on worshipping. And God's got a great sense of humor, doesn't he? He immediately gives me a word for the man standing there. <laughs> And he says, Andrew, you need to know that the guy standing next to you is a pastor. He's a pastor of a church here in Australia. And, um, and he needs to know that the Holy Spirit's about to break out in his church like an Ezekiel 47 moment. It's going to be like a, a river of the Holy Spirit rushing into the sanctuary of his church. And he needs to immediately encourage him with that. And I'm worshiping away, and I'm thinking to myself, and I'm just kind of casually glancing at this guy. The guy next to me is worshiping away as well, you know, he's just in his own little world. I'm like glancing at him, thinking, does he look like a pastor? <laughs> but I, I don't know what pastors are supposed to look like, but I'm kind of glancing at this guy. This guy does not look like a pastor. He, he looked more like a hell's painful motorcycle gang member. That's what he looked like. He had this big leather jacket on with patches all over. He had a big hair belly sticking out. He had like a beard and everything. I don't know, but, anyway, but he looks... He did not look like your clean-cut, conservative, nice mm, pastor guy, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm looking away, and I'm kind of glancing at this guy. After a while, he's worshiping, and he realizes the weird guy on his left is glancing at him during worship. And so he kind of sort of turns a little bit like this, looking at me. I'm by that point kind of totally staring at him. Um, and here's what happens. This is crazy. Right? This is my moment. To say simply to him, hey mate, you know, um, God's going to about to do this Ezekiel 47 thing in your church. It's going to be awesome. Let the Holy Spirit, you know. I've got it all in my head and I'm looking at him and I'm thinking to myself, I'm not a prophet. I don't move in the gift of prophecy. And I'm looking at him and he's looking at me. Here's what happens. Rather than me saying anything to him, we just spontaneously hug. We like to hug. Like it's this like Christian male bonding moment that was like this phenomenal thing. We started to hug each other and my mouth was like really close to his ear, like kind of weird, but it was there as we were hugging. And that was my moment to say, hey buddy, you know, Ezekiel 47. Again, I pull out of it. I'm like, this is not a gift, this is not who I am. I pull away, I carry on worshiping. He carries on worshiping. We don't even say anything to each other. We just hug brotherly love together. And then after we go worshiping again, the whole rest of the service was just normal, thank God. Um, but I get home that night, and I'm sharing with 100 team members. I'm like, this weird thing happened. I had this word for this woman that, you know, I held them up. I had this word for this guy next to me. Look, like, this is what pastor, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, Andrew, you're an idiot. <laughs> like, how, how come you didn't respond to what God had put in your heart? And I'm like, wow, well, you know, I'm struggling with this idea. I don't, you know, I, I've stepped out before, and I didn't have it right, and it was embarrassing. And I kind of went through the whole list. By the way, I'm the lead pastor of the church, right? So I'm like, I'm terrible. And here's like the people in the church going, Andrew, if you ever see those two people again in the conference, you have to guarantee us that you will give them those words. I'm thinking to myself, 60,000 people, right? Not only 60,000 people, I'm thinking two groups of 30,000 people. I wasn't even supposed to be in that group, right? 
So I'm like, yeah, sure. No problem. Let us see every day I'll give the word. Yeah. I go to bed that night. I'm lying in bed. And I'm praying. I'm having a sober, I'm a terrible Lord, forgive me moment. And I'm praying to God, and I'm saying, God, okay, if I ever see those two people again, I promise you, I will be obedient, I'll give those words, I'll do it, help me. And I'm picturing the woman, and I didn't even ever see her face, I just saw the back of her head, so a little bit weird. Um, but the guy, I could see it, I could see his face in my mind as I was praying, as I was going to sleep. Next morning, Friday morning, next session, 30,000 different people. And I'm standing there just before the start of the worship service, and I'm looking around this conference trying to find the woman, right? Trying to find the back of the head that looks like her back of the head. And I'm looking around, I can't see anything, I can't see her, and I'm turning around, and then I casually glance to the end of the row that I'm standing in, and guess who's standing at the end of the row? Not the girl, but the motorcycle guy. And not only is he standing at the end of the row, but he's eyeing me up, like super eyeing me up, and he's wiggling down the road towards me. And I'm thinking like, this is so weird. This guy like, what's that? Yeah, whatever. So he comes up to me. Before I can say anything, he goes, mate. He's just kidding, by the way. This is my only accent. Yeah. He's like, mate. He's like, you probably don't remember me. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of ironic, but I do. Um, <laughs> and he's like, well, I was standing next to you at the worship service last night. And we were worshiping away. And when I went to bed last night, I was just praying. And your name and your face came into my mind as I was praying last night. And I'm like, whoa, this is so weird. And he said, yeah, I, and I got a word from God. And I said to God last night, if I ever see that young man again at the conference, I'll give him that word. And I'm like, no way. Well, what's the word? And he said, the word is this. You are a prophet. <laughs> you have to give the prophecy, son. And he starts, I don't know why I don't American on you, but anyway. Uh, so he starts, he starts going with this, like, I have to skip the prophecy. I'm at this point, like, weeping. You know, because I'm like, this is nuts. Like, only God could ever. And so after he's done his thing, I'm like, dude, sit down, because I've got a word for you. And I said, and I started to pray over him. Ezekiel 47 is going to be like the flooding of the sanctuary, the river of God is going to flow out. And it says in Ezekiel 47, your church is going to be radically changed. He's weeping and weeping. And here's what he says He says, You don't know this, but I was a, I'm a pastor of a small church just north of Brisbane. And he said, there's, a, there's a, a water pipe that runs under our church. It's the only water pipe that serves the whole of the village, of uh, the town that we, that we live in. And just two weeks ago, after we had renovated the church, the water pipe burst. And water flooded into our sanctuary. And it ruined all of the equipment. And I came to this conference upset at God, angry about everything, because everything we had put into this new sanctuary has now been ruined by all this water. And you've now told me that that's actually a symbol of the Holy Spirit's blood. And he's just like crying and going, and I'm like, him, high-fiving him, and I'm thinking this, only God could ever set something up like that. Only God has the ability to take two random people in a 60,000 people environment, give each other different words, hook each other up, and weave it all together in a nice little package where I walk away saying, God, forgive me for doubting my identity in Christ. And he walked away saying, God, forgive me for thinking that this was the ruins, when actually this is the start of something beautiful. And as I walked away from that experience, here's what was going on in my head. My lack of the understanding of my identity caused me not to walk out in faith with the things that God is asking me to do. 
So there's this correlation between how we see ourselves in Christ and the faith that we have that Steve was talking about last week, that can-do culture of faith attitude. There's a connection between these two things. This is why the Bible is so passionate, why Paul, the apostle, who writes the majority of the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament, what apostles from Hong Kong, the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, this, this is why this is so important. Because Paul wanted the church to know you've got to understand your identity in Christ so that you can then do the things that Christ is calling you to do. That's why in this missions uh, season that you're in as a church, we framed it, created anew, so that I can do. You, you, you see how that flows? Here's, I want to read you a passage. I talked a bit about this on Thursday night. So if you were, if you were here on Thursday night, you can pull asleep for five minutes. Um, but... Here's, here's a passage that Paul writes to the church when he's trying to get them to understand their identity. In 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 14, it says this. How's the PowerPoint? Does it work? Yeah! Alright, cool. So it says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one with a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. This is the key verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Paul wants his church in Corinth, a city that was trying to really be Greek or Roman, and people who are coming out of a Greek and Roman lifestyle and culture, Paul wants them to realize, look, when you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you don't just have one foot in the Greek and Roman camp and one foot now in this kind of cool Jesus camp, and you sort of float between the two of those things. No, you've got to realize the power of the cross. But when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he didn't do so so that you would remain planted in two different camps. He did so because in faith in Him, you are now, what He calls here, a new creation. The old, everything of your past, all the brokenness, all the hurt, all the pain, all that stuff is gone, and you now are a completely new person in Jesus. This new creation. And Paul was like, if you don't understand your identity as a newly created person in Jesus, you will never have the ability to walk in faith for the things that God has you to do. Now, here's the powerful thing. In this phrase, you are a new creation. This word new, we translate it in our English new. There are actually two different Greek words for the word that we translate in English new. The first Greek word is the word neos. And here's what neos means. Neos means something that's new, that's created out of something that's old. So if you were to take something that was old and broken and restore it and make it new, that would be a neos kind of news. Does that make sense to you? Say yes, please. Yes. Okay. yes. So that's the first word, neos. Here's the second word. It's the word kainos. Kainos means this. We also translate it with the word new, but here's what it means. It means something new out of something that was never before existed. Never before existed. In other words, it is completely brand new. So you've got these two Greek words, neos, which means new from something old, and kainos, new from nothing at all, so completely brand new. Which of those two words do you think Paul uses when he speaks about our identity in Christ Jesus? He, but in the Oscar, he uses the word 
kindness. And here's why. He wants the church to understand, and here's why I'm passionate for you guys this morning. I want us to understand the power of the cross. Because if he had said, Paul, we are Ninos creations in Christ Jesus, all that Paul's really saying is, hey, when you came to confession of Jesus and Jesus came into your heart, guess what? God just came along and kind of dusted off some of the stuff in your life, just kind of, you know, shined you up a little bit with the, with the Holy Spirit. But, but the old stuff is still there. You're just using that old stuff to kind of be a little bit better, right? Who doesn't do that? He says, you're kinos creations in Jesus. In other words, the person that you are through the power of the cross, the power of the forgiveness of the sins, the power of God's redemption in us, and the power of the fact that He now lives in us is so strong, it's as if you had never existed before. You're not just made up of all of your broken, bad stuff and your pain and your failures and all the sin of your past, and you're a little bit more shined up now because you believe in Jesus. No! Paul's saying, stop believing or thinking of yourself that way as Christians. You are kindness creation, completely brand new. That's the power of the cross. So therefore, stand up, take confidence, and walk the path that Christ has put over you. When he speaks into you and says that that girl needs to know that she is loved by her husband, Andrew. Come on, you're kindness creation. You're not some broken guy saying, oh, there must be somebody better. I didn't really operate in that gift. That's not really me. No, that's neos thinking. Kindness thinking. It's to say, wow, Christ has done something in me through the power of the cross, which has now positioned me to do the things that he is asking me to do. I can walk now in faith. See, all of that, is that helpful? Now, all of that is background to the passage that we're centering on for this series. Let me read this to you from Ephesians chapter 2. Both Jeff and Steve preached from this in the last two weeks. It says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves, for it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. In other words, your salvation, your new identity, was not earned by you. Guess what? You didn't even deserve it. You didn't even deserve your kindness. Creation. It's not like you did some good things in your previous life, Jesus saw favor on you and changed you. No, that's a gift of grace. We are made new completely by Him as a gift of grace. But then notice what He says in verse 9. Not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's masterpiece, or workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. I want you to see this. Can you hear what Paul's saying? Created in Christ Jesus. He's not saying you created yourself. He's not saying all of the bad stuff of your past has been slightly dusted off. He's saying you are kindness creation now in Christ Jesus. Created in Christ Jesus. Why? Just so that you can get out of here and go to heaven? No. So that you can then do good works. And notice what he says about this. He says these were created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Everybody say advance. God prepared an advance for us to do. So that when I'm standing in front of 30,000 people I don't know, and I get a word for a lady and a word for a man, these are good works prepared in advance for me to do. Not because I've earned them, not because I'm great, not because I'm some pastor of the church, but because I'm kind of creation in Jesus. 
And because I understand my new identity in Him, God has placed me in a situation that He had long before planned so that I can partake and partner in His good works. They're not my good works. His good works that I get invited into because I have made new in Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? Give me another example from my life. A couple of years ago, um, a couple of years ago, I uh, went to Israel for a filming series. We were doing it for our church, a filming series to help our church. Many of the people in our church um, can't get visas to go to Israel. And so we decided we would go to Israel and bring Israel to them so they can see it. So we did this filming project, and in one of the uh, series of the film, um, I went down to the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. And the idea was is that we in the film crew would go down there and on any day, in any time of the year, there's about a hundred people that are waiting to get baptized where Jesus got baptized. And so our idea was we would show up with our cameras, we would interview a bunch of people getting baptized, ask them why they're getting baptized, what it's all about, and then we would splice together all those testimonies and that would be what we'd want to present to the church on that particular Sunday. So when we were on our scouting trip a few months before we did the filming, we showed up at the baptism site, and I, I reckon there's probably about 250 people waiting to get baptized. Three months later, we show up with all our cameras and all our gears, and we go into this big parking lot right by the Jordan River. There's not one car or one tour bus inside. There's like no one there. And I, I could not believe this. We went at the same day, at the same time as we had previously gone a few months before, when there was about 250 people there waiting to get baptized. No one was there. Now, we only had about an hour in our schedule to get this particular film, so we, we get off the bus, we walk down uh, towards the car park, we're looking around going, where is everyone? And I'm so angry and so upset about it that I kind of just in a bad mood, I walk down towards the Jordan River where you can actually go into the river to be baptized. And I walk down there, and as I get down there, no one's around, no, nothing's happening at all. It's almost like, you know, this is kind of like national holiday and everybody's gone away or the rapture, one of the two, you know. And I'm standing there, and I look around to the right, and in a shade, just on the corner, I spot two people. There's this Filipino lady, old Filipino lady, and her son. And I walk over to them, and I, I, I start to engage in conversation with them. She's crying. And I say, what, what's happening? And she tells me this story. At the age of five, this Filipino lady received a vision from God that one day, she would be baptized in the Jordan River at five years old. And, and, and all of her adult life, she, she grew up in a relative state of poverty. She had never been able to afford the ability to go to Israel to get baptized in the Jordan River. But for her 65th birthday, her son had got the money together to fly her to Israel so she could fulfill a 60-year-old dream when she was five years old. She had arrived in Israel that very morning in Tel Aviv, and she had hired a taxi with her son, and they had driven straight to the baptism site, which is about two and a half hour drive. They had gone out of the taxi, and guess what? No one was there. Nobody. Nothing. And she was been standing there for an hour in the shade, weeping, because she's like, when I was five, I believed this had happened. This is my lifelong dream. I finally arrived here, and there's no one here. And she says to me, I show up, and there is no proof. And I suddenly feel the Holy Spirit rising in me. And I say to her, well, I'm not a priest, but I am a pastor of a church, and I would be honored if you wanted me to baptize you. And you should have seen her face. And I realized, what a crazy privilege 
that God, 60 years ago, that's before I was born, I just want to point out, okay? 60 years ago, put a desire in this woman's heart, and God had prepared in advance the good works that I got to be swept up into by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I just happened to be there at that moment, at that time. I was the one that God had asked and put aside to baptize this woman. I mean, what an incredible joy. Not because I'm a good person. Because I am created anew so that I can do. So that there are these good works set aside for me. So you are creating new Christ Jesus. So, so the question today is not whether you are equipped for these good works, because you are made in the image of Christ. The question is, are you willing to participate in these good works? Or are you, like me, going to raise your hand and go, I'm not really gifted in that way. Oh, there must be somebody else. Oh, it's faith promise Sunday. Ah, oh, I don't really have that much money. Oh, there's better people in the church to give than me. Or are we going to realize that none of us are in this room this morning by mistake? That each one of you, like me, at the Jordan River, at that specific time, you are in this room, prepared to do a good work that God has in advance prepared for you to get to participate in. None of you are here by mistake today. And whether you feel like you're going to give one dollar, or whether a thousand dollars, or a hundred thousand dollars, whatever it is that God has put on your heart, you shouldn't compare that to the person sitting next to you. You should say, if God's put this on my heart, then this is the good work that he has prepared for me to do today. And when I give, I can do so in confidence and excitement with an open heart, knowing that he will achieve the good work collectively together at the church. There's a, um, one of my mentors, Roman McManus, he puts it this way, I love how he says it. He says, you need to realize that you're not just a work of art. You're also an artist at work. And I think that's a really engaging way to think about this. You're not just a work of art created in you in Christ Jesus, the kind of creation because of your faith in Him. You're also an artist at work. You get to partake in the creation of the redemptive society and world that God has for us. This is why when Paul writes in the scriptures, and he writes in the churches, he says, you are in Christ in Philippi. In Christ, in Ephesus. In Christ, in Colossae. Why? Because what Paul's teaching the church is this. You're not just created anew in Christ Jesus and then set up on some holy huddle up on a hill where you can get away from society. No, I've made you in Christ and I've placed you in a context. You are in Christ in Ephesus, in Christ in Colossae. If Paul was here this morning, he would stand over you and he would say, you are in Christ in Calamunda. That means... That your relationship with Jesus is not just about yourself. It's about the context, the environment, the culture, the society, the place in which you are now placed in. You are in Christ, in Kalamunda. Kalamunda should know it. I wouldn't even put it this way. I wouldn't put it as strongly as this. I think you cannot call yourself a Christian and remain distant to the injustice or the need in society around. Let me say that again. You cannot call yourself a Christian. You cannot take the name of Christ and wear that as a name and be distant to the injustice and the needs 
in society around you. Because the gospel, the cross, is all about being redeemed for these good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. And if we stay in our holy heavens, if we remove ourselves from the society around us, then we're not actually living out the gospel. I'm going to be talking a lot more about that tonight. I'm actually going to unpack for you what I think the gospel truly is. And we're going to look at that together. I want to invite you to come back tonight if you haven't time to do so. But in this moment, here's what God is calling us to. To know that we are new people and to know that in faith there is good works prepared for us to do. Let me just say a few things about us as a society. Here's the first thing. We as a generation in this society are the most educated generation that has ever been. There is nobody in the history of humanity that is more educated than our society. Not only are we the most educated, but we are the most connected generation that there has ever been. And the interwebs has done that for us, hasn't it? We are able to connect with one another in ways that we were never able to do in generations past. So we're the most educated, we're the most connected. You're also the most adaptable generation of those that We're able to fit to different environments. We're able to use our resources to do so. We're able to use that connectedness in our education to adapt ourselves to changing environments more rapidly than any other generation of humanity ever before. And then finally, we are the most resourced generation that there has ever been. Educated, connected, adaptable, and resourced. There's never been a generation in the history of humanity that has those four things at their fingertips like we do. And if you were to ask any sociologist, here's what they would say. And they said, if you were hoping to change the culture of your society, if you were hoping to shift injustice in your society, if you were hoping to address needs in your society, you would need to be educated, connected, adaptable, and resourced. Fascinating that the very four things that we need to do the mission that God has called us to are the very four things that have been at our fingertips more in this generation than in any other generation. And I think God looks over that and he sees an opportunity for us. He doesn't look into the brokenness of our world. And let's face it, around the world right now, there's a lot of brokenness for us to be talking about. I don't think God looks at that and goes, man, this is overwhelming for me. What am I going to do? I think God stands over that and he goes, just wait till the church wakes up and realizes that they're educated, resourced, adaptable, and connected, where they can actually begin to model that they are created anew so that they can do. You just wait for the works that I've already prepared in advance for them to do. Man, when the church stands up, there will be a voice in its society for change. I want to talk a little bit. I got, do I have a few more minutes? Good, all right. I want, <laughs> I'm going to go anyway, so it's fine. Um, but I want to talk uh, as, as I draw to a close. I want to show you, though, what it is for us as Christians. Okay, hopefully, in this message so far, you've got the idea that you're created in you. Is that correct? You've got also the idea that you are made new and that your identity has something to say about the faith you need to do the works that you, you need to do. Right? You got that? The third thing I've been telling you is that as we go and do those works, they've already been prepared in advance for us. They're God's works, not us, and He wants to sweep us up and involve us in that work. Not because He needs us to be involved in that work, but because He simply wants us to find the joy in partnering Him in it. So that's the third thing. Here's the fourth thing. How then do we actually do the works? Is that not a good question? How do we actually put into practice what we're talking about today? How do we as the church do this? Well, why not look at the model of Jesus? And I want to uh, spend just a few moments uh, on this incredible passage that we have uh, in Luke. Jesus, of course, the greatest model for us of someone who understood who they were in God 
and then walked out those good works for the glory of God. And there's this amazing moment in Jesus' story at the end of his life where he comes to approach Jerusalem, his city that he was passionate about. Here it might be Kalamunda or it might be Perth. In my context, it's Hong Kong and China. For Jesus, it was Jerusalem. The city that he had, uh, from the very first time, about eight days old, he had gone in there and his parents had blessed him. But the place that he had visited almost every year of his childhood because his parents celebrated Passover. The place where at 12 he had his bar mitzvah in this city of Jerusalem and had confounded all of the scholars by his wisdom. But also the place that he had specifically stayed away from during his ministry. Because Jesus knew that when he arrived in the city that he loves, he would die. And that's an important context for us to bear in mind as we read this passage. That Jesus had stayed away from Jerusalem for a period of time because he knew that when he got there, he would be swept up in the events that would ultimately lead to his death. And he had work to do before he got there. But this moment is when he finally crests the hill. I've actually walked this. You can actually walk it in Jerusalem today. You can crest up from Galilee, from Bethlehem, up to the hill where you actually get the first glimpse of Jerusalem. And this passage I'm about to read is that moment for Jesus. He's literally just walked up this hill and he's cresting over and he's catching with his eyes Jerusalem for the first time. Here's what it says in Luke 19, verse 41. It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and then he spoke. If you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Well, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle around you and hand you in from every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another for because you do not recognize the time of the coming of God to you. Jesus stands in front of the city that he so desperately loves. And the Bible captures him doing four simple things. And these four things become for us what I believe is the model for us as we think about what it is to do the things that God has called us to do. Here's the first thing that we see. He approaches Jerusalem. Now, that might sound simple to us. Oh yeah, of course he approached Jerusalem. He was heading there to die. But then stop and think about that for a second. I don't know about you, but if there was a city that I was going to go to where I knew I was going to die, I would not approach it. Jesus, thank you very wise. Jesus knew what was ahead of him in this city, and yet he was still willing to put himself in the place of being close to that city. He didn't stand back and go, this is just too much for me. He would have a moment similar to that in the Garden of Gethsemane just a few days later. But in this moment, he looks out on the city, he's aware of what's ahead of him, but he was still willing to approach. Here's me with my arms in the air at a Hillsong conference. God's speaking to me about this lovely lady in front of me who needs to know that her husband loves her. And do I approach? No. Why do I not approach? Because I'm afraid. I'm fearful that if she isn't married, I'll look like an idiot. I'm fearful that that word is not from God. I'm fearful in my identity in Jesus, and so I stay away. And here's the thing that I think for many of us as Christians, we need to bear in mind. That the call for missions that we're celebrating here today, the call for us to go and do and work in areas of injustice in our society, it's going to take some courage in you. It's going to take that faith that Steve was talking about last week. 
And it's going to need that to rise up in us. And here's Jesus approaching the city where he knows he's going to die, and yet he realizes that the work that's been prepared in advance for him to do. Here's the second thing we see. Is this okay so far? Are we still living? Here's the second thing. He approaches the city, and then it says he sees it. Now again, we might read that in the scripture, and you go like, well, of course, like he's standing over the ridge, then he can see the city. Of course, he sees it. But actually, the, the Greek word that's used here speaks more about, speaks much more about an insight than it does about physical seeing. So what we need to see here is that Jesus, first of all, sees the city, or comes up to the city, approaches the city, the one that's going to be a problem for him, overcomes fear, and courage walks towards the city. Here's the second thing. He then sees it, not just physically, he sees it spiritually. He actually discerns what is happening in that city. So much for that when he prays in a moment, when he speaks out, he actually sees what happens to him in 70 AD. Historically, uh, it's a prophetic moment for Jesus. And here's the thing for us. As we think about a model for how we step out in the good works that Christ has prepared for us to do, first of all, the courage to approach the things, even if they're difficult. And the second thing is this, that we are not just see them physically, we are to pray and believe and prophesy and see them spiritually. This is why the Church of Christ is the hope of the world. Because a secular NGO can approach a problem and see it, but they cannot see it in the way that we see it. They cannot begin to see it as God would truly see it. And this ability for us to have eyes of faith, to truly see the brokenness of people, not just systemic brokenness, the brokenness that people are carrying, and be able to, as Christians, speak out through the blood of Christ and the redemption that He's provided for us, and welcome people to the cross where they can find that full redemption for themselves. That's the power that only the local church should do. And so as we approach the issues and see them in the way that Jesus would see them, it enables us to be in a position where we can truly do something that God wants us to do. Here's the next one. It then says that Jesus weeps over the city. This is very interesting. This is the moment of his triumphal entry. I bet the thing you know about his triumphal entry is the singing and the praising of the palm branches, right? It's like, oh, the pig's here, the palm branches are going to be singing away, right? Actually, we skip over this verse a lot when we think about and preach about the transmenture. Jesus shows up, and there's the praise of the people, the worship of the people, and yet he looks on the city and he weeps. The word here is the uh, word kaleo. And kaleo means to weep bitterly. It means to weep all of your heart and pull all of your heart out. Jesus is not just shedding a few minor tears. He's weeping his eyes out for the brokenness of the people. And then the final thing it says that he does